um, because we couldn't get the screen to work. But. Well, uh, good morning, everyone. Thanks for coming out this morning. Uh, the title of my uh, presentation is going to be Competent Person Training, uh, How to Serve the Human Community. Uh, and kind of as far as I was going to talk about... Um, just being competent in your work and, and things of that nature. And if I would have did some proper planning this morning, I would have figured out that the stuff wasn't working and we, we would get here. But uh, I'm a construction manager. We think on our feet and we just kind of keep things moving. Uh, so in every good endeavor, uh, Tim Keller gets into this section called the uh, uh, Work as Ministry of Competence. And he uh, starts that off this way. One of the main ways you love others in your work is through the ministry of competence. If God's purpose for your job is that you serve the human community, then the way to serve God best is to do the job as well as it can be done. Um, so this section uh, really, really struck me, and I feel like it really sums up how God has uh, called me to uh, serve in this job. And Keller in this section, he puts it a little bit differently than we would confine, like, competent person in construction, we kind of use that as it relates to, like, safety and having somebody with, like, the authority um, and the skill to identify, like, unsafe things on site and the ability to change those things. But Telekin defines it a little bit differently here as he talks about doing work well and having this mindset of being competent in the work is something to satisfy you in a way to love others uh, through your work. Um, and in my role, I don't always have the time to be on site and supervise every nail that's driven. Um, but I do have the ability to kind of set the tone in the way that we build our homes and the way we treat our volunteers and the way we uh, serve our homeowners. Um, and a little while ago, Hurricane Michael happened in Florida. Um, and then this article came out in the Washington Post. There's this picture of these five houses in the middle of this picture still standing and the rest of the neighborhood is uh, kind of demolished by the storm and they've suffered heavy damage. And But the five houses in the middle of this picture are five habitat homes that were that were built. You kind of see these five metal roofs in the middle of this uh, kind of scene as you're going to kind of see when the handouts get here of uh, these five houses still standing, suffered only minor damage. Um, I know a lot of people when you put the word affordable in things, they think that it's cheap, but that's not the, really the way we operate at Habitat. Cheap doesn't really factor into what we call affordable housing and affordable homes. Uh, and those and those kind of go around. You kind of see that see that picture as well. Um, and just kind of reading this book and and thinking about work and, and the way I work. Um, Kind of uh, a bit of my origin. I started working at eight. I was put on a riding lawnmower, and I was mowing about six, six acres of grass a week uh, at that point. Um, so starting at a very young age, getting out and working and, and growing up on a farm. I guess some of my aspirations were growing up. Maybe I saw a movie once, like in elementary school. I said I wanted to be a stockbroker because I wanted to make a lot of money and. Then I started kind of drawing a bit in middle school. I wanted to be an artist or an architect. And going into high school and being kind of mechanically inclined, wanting to be either like a engineer or a custom car builder, those type of things. I really didn't consider construction until I got to college. Um, 
in which at that time is uh, where I met Christ, and I was also considering uh, full-time ministry as, as well. And even along that process, kind of picking up some other jobs, I worked in the brake manufacturing plant one summer. I detailed boats another summer. Uh, I worked at Target for a couple years when I was in college, waking up at 3.30 in the morning to go stock shelves there and then going to class. Um, so just uh, from that young age of like working and always having a job, I think it's kind of affected the way I kind of approach work now and the effort and, and ethic I, I put into that um, as well. Um, yeah, so when I got to college, I started to seriously consider construction. I went there thinking I was going to be a civil engineer or some type of engineer, got put on the wait list, had time on my hands to kind of think about what I wanted to do, what major I wanted to end up in. And uh, as my I talked to my advisor, she uh, introduced me to the building construction program there. And as I just started to look through the courses, it seemed to kind of line up to where I wanted to be in life. Um, and then also around that time is I met four guys who introduced me to Christ and seeing them live out their salvation also changed the way, changed, started to change my worldview and changed the way I started to think about work um, during that time. So over the course of my college career, like becoming a Christian and learning more about service and, and how that impacts um, our, our lives and, and the people around us and going to a college whose uh, motto is prosum that, that I may serve. So all those factors kind of feel like I've been being pushed along this journey to into a life where I'm serving people uh, through this nonprofit. So probably around my senior year, I really to start consider some things, looking at a few other nonprofits, looking at Habitat. Uh, I had a friend on the Gulf Coast who was uh, doing an AmeriCorps year um, after Katrina with another nonprofit. He's like, hey, you should check out this program. Like around that time, things weren't so well for the construction industry, 2009, 2010. Uh, weren't a lot of jobs out there, um, and I think that's another thing God kind of used to force me into this path. But I was still considered uh, for profit, for profit opportunities. There was a few companies I was talking to, um, and I was pretty deep into uh, um, talks with this one company that I thought I was going to be working for, and. Kind of through the interview process, I kind of emailed them saying, like, it wasn't the right fit, it wasn't going to work out, and at that point, I really hadn't applied for anything else. <laughs> so I was just kind of uh, kind of being a bum, working at Target, hanging out in Blacksburg uh, with my friends. But, um, yeah, through that, God still remained faithful. I applied for this AmeriCorps position to come up here and work with Habitat. Um, came up in July, I think I emailed Greg or something like that. <laughs> And uh, and we kind of met. I uh, met a few other people around the church at that time. And then a few months later, when I was moving up here, I was called Greg. I was like, I don't have a place to stay. And luckily, Susan and Ivor had an extra room that they uh, so graciously let me stay there. <laughs> and uh, so I found a place. Um, so that's how I kind of got to New Haven, got involved with Habitat, got involved with Trinity. So kind of seeing like all these things kind of come together to uh, bring me to where I'm at today. Um, so I'm a construction manager. What is that? What do we do? Um, this definition, organizing, scheduling, mobilizing, the directing equipment, materials, 
and personnel to in performance of a construction contract. And that word contract is very big in construction. All things hinge upon that word and everything that exists in it. But uh, that's the that's the talk for for another time. So, what I'm doing on a everyday basis is uh, organizing, scheduling, mobilizing, and and directing. How those things play out. Organizing. Do I have plans? Do I have permits? Do uh, subs materials? Do I have those things lined up for the project? Uh, scheduling. What do I need to do. Um, what I need, do I need, uh, when do I need this tub, when do I need the electrician to show up, when do I need the plumber to show up, when I need the roof on the house, trying to coordinate all those things and get those together, mobilizing the site, is when is the portage on showing up? That's always the first question that everybody asks, especially my excavator, since he's the first one on site. Um, temporary power, getting all those things set up so the guys can work and not listen to the generator run all day. Um, and directing, delegating tasks, uh, coordinating volunteers, um, all those things that kind of go into my job. And I'll kind of elaborate on some of that as we kind of uh, move along. Um, so the thing, I guess, the main thing with construction is uh, we're just trying to, construction management, we're trying to make the project run smoothly from start to finish. Um, in our world, we call that mitigating risks, trying to think of everything that can go wrong and mitigate those things so the project can go smoothly. Uh, and then that kind of next slide with Bob the Builder in the middle there in that house, that's kind of a, a representation of kind of how my mind works. Like, I have to take all these hundreds of tasks and materials and things, and I have to boil that down into one cohesive project in the end. Um, which takes quite a bit of work. Um, I think on an average project, I probably manage about 3,000 man hours worth of work, and we probably have anywhere from probably 50 to 80 volunteers out a week on a, on a regular basis. Um, some of the bigger days, I've had 18 or 20 people out, so <laughs> it's, uh, it's quite a job some days. Um, so what what is construction? Um, there's there's many different um, avenues that I can fall into. It could be transportation, petroleum, buildings, power plants, um, water management, manufacturing, sewer and waste, telecom. All these things are, are different parts of construction and, and, and where you can fall as a construction manager. Um, and construction in America employs about 10 million people. Um, there's a lot of different sectors, there's a lot of different places you can fall, and as construction managers, we make up about 6% of that fill, and as a habitat construction manager, there's maybe five or six of us in the whole state. Um, so the group of people that do what I do it gets even smaller as you uh, kind of dig deeper into it. Um, and nonprofits, uh, Coming across a lot of people, a lot of people have a lot of different ideas of what nonprofits do or what nonprofits uh, look like. Um, I'll put a definition there for you. Um, pretty much, uh, nonprofits they're they're dedicated to a mission. All the revenue and all the money comes in. We usually try and push out into the pro programs or the missions that we're that we're uh, aiming towards. Um, so trying to keep staff overhead low, trying to 
keep all that other miscellaneous stuff um, low so we can put all the money that people are donating towards these programs into these programs so that we're uh, supporting that uh, mission and vision. Um, and a fact that I've learned through kind of doing some research on this, nonprofits employ 11 million people, which is higher than construction these days, um, which I found surprising. Um, and Habitat, the specific nonprofit that I work for, uh, we're an international organization in over 70 countries, and there's 400 affiliates around the United States, um, each focusing on its own geographical area. And that's mainly to kind of get the people in that community, the businesses in that community, to feel like they're investing in their community. Um, so we have several sponsor groups, uh, one called Sleeping Giant, which is businesses, churches, um, and individuals from the Cheshire, North Haven, Hamden area that raise $50,000, $50 or $60,000 per house. There's another one on the Shoreline called Raise the Roof. They raise around the same amount. Um, that's Madison, Branford, and all those towns out that way. They kind of come together to support and raise a house. Uh, and um, I guess raise money for the house. Um, and we also have some bigger sponsors as well, um, like Yonah Haven Hospital, who donates property. They donate $75,000 per house. Um, and it's, we've had a pretty good run with them as being one of our sponsors. Um, and since Habitat was formed in 1976, we've served around 13 million people, and not all that is uh, home building. There's other programs that Habitat does to get behind people and, and get behind um, having people have decent housing through microfinancing in certain countries. And haven't really dug much into that. I'm not sure how that looks, but helping people with financing, financial education. We do disaster response, uh, neighborhood revitalization, which involves uh, small projects and fixer um, uppers at different people's houses, a uh, brush with kindness program where they were painting people's houses for time to time. And all these things are kind of catered to the community where that habitat chapter is. So they're specifically like pinpointing the needs of that community and going about learning how to serve those. Um, so Habitat in New Haven, um, we haven't done any microfinancing or neighborhood revitalization. Um, we stick to purely home building. Um, over the past decade, most of our uh, construction has been uh, new construction. A um, couple rehabs in there, but we've been buying uh, vacant lots from the city at a pretty good price and building new homes from the, from the ground up. Uh, been around since 1986, uh, over 100 homes. Um, like I said before, 50 to 80 volunteers a week. And this year we're on track to do about four homes because um, we threw a rehab in there of a 1830s captain's house um, that we had to do some extensive work on, which only has three foundation walls right now. But, uh, yeah, we're getting there on that one. <laughs> Uh, so our motto is a hand up, not a handout. Um, we look to partner. Our main goal is to partner with these families, not to just build a house for them, but to partner with them. So we do that through um, the 400 hours worth of sweat equity that they do. They come out, they work on projects on uh, houses leading up to theirs and on their house. So they're like connecting with the other homeowners and the other volunteers and 
you're kind of building all these relationships through that process and kind of seeing them kind of grow and their construction knowledge and they're kind of out there framing their house, they're tiling their floors, they're painting the walls, they're kind of doing all these things along the process as well. And they also have a mortgage. Um, it's zero interest over 25 years, so it's a pretty good mortgage, um, I'd say. Um, and, and all that money from that mortgage kind of goes back into the program and building more homes as well. Um, any questions at this point? Does the average house cost? Uh, average house is about ninety-five thousand. And that's a, a three-bedroom. Uh, three-bedroom, bath and a half, full basement. Yeah. Anybody else? Um. So, after that overview of kind of what construction management is and. And what it uh, what it looks like for for habitat here in New Haven. Um, I just come back to uh, this this section from Tim Keller and thinking about like what does it mean to to be competent in your work? What does it mean to uh, work well and to and to serve others? Um, so uh, I'll I'll read this section one more time. It says one of the main ways you love others in your work is through the ministry of competence. If God's purpose for your job is to serve the human community, then the way to serve God best is to do the job well as it can be done. Um, and, and, and thinking about examples of that, uh, we, we have a lot of figures in the, in the Bible of, of people who, uh, who served and, and worked well. And I think we tend to put them on pedestals and kind of idolize that. But, like, these were real people, like, doing, like, real work um, and, and like the first example that came to mind when I thought about that was Joseph so we'll go to uh, Genesis 41 um, so so in Genesis 41 um, this is where Joseph uh, interprets Pharaoh's dream. He tells him about the uh, years of plenty and the years of, of, of famine. And then Pharaoh kind of sets them up to uh, kind of handle all of this. Um, so if I could get uh, maybe a couple pe people to read this, uh, we'll read verses 41 through the uh, end of the chapter. Somebody maybe wants to start reading, and some and kind of somebody else picks up after that, or somebody can read the whole thing. Start. Cool. Let's read the whole thing. Cool. <laughs> um, Forty-one. So Pharaoh said to Joseph, "See, I have set you over all the land of Egypt." Then Pharaoh took his signet ring from his hand and put it on Joseph's hand. Daughter of uh, Potiphar, priest of Amun. 
So Joseph went out over all the land of Egypt. Joseph was 30 years old when he entered the service of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And Joseph went out from the presence of Pharaoh and went through all the land of Egypt. During the seven plentiful years, the earth produced abundantly. And he gathered up all the food of the feast seven years, which occurred in the land of Egypt, and put the food in the cities. He put in every city the food from the food around it. And Joseph stored up grain in great abundance, like the sand of the sea, until he ceased to measure it, for it could not be measured. Before the year of famine came, two sons were born to Joseph. Asenath, the daughter of Potiphar, priest of An, bore them to him. Joseph called the name of the firstborn Manasseh, for he, for, he said, God has made me forget all my hardship in all my, father, in all my father's house. The name of the second he called Ephraim, God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. The seven years of plenty that occurred in the land of Egypt came to an end, and the seven years of famine began to come, as Joseph had said. There was famine in all lands. In all the land of Egypt, there was bread. When all the land of Egypt was famished, the people cried to Pharaoh for bread. Pharaoh said to all the Egyptians, Go to Joseph. What he says to you, do. So when the famine had spread over all the land, Joseph opened up all the storehouses and sold the Egyptians. For the famine was severe in the land of Egypt. Moreover, all the earth came to Egypt to Joseph, came to Egypt to Joseph to buy grain, because the famine was severe over all the earth. So here, what do we what do we see as as Joseph's work? He's an administrator, basically, right? I guess today you call him bureaucrat. <laughs> In some sense, yeah. He's uh, like measuring grain. Storing it competently. Yeah. It didn't spoil. Yep. A manager. Yeah, he was a, a bit of a, a project manager here. <laughs> he has a lot of authority, but he has a lot of responsibility. Yeah. Yeah, so as, as we look at this, um, as we see, like, Joseph interpreting Pharaoh's dream, like, that was only part of the work that God sent him there to do. Uh, and as we, we see him after that, like, he gets all that responsibility. He has to administrate and, and, and manage all these things. Um, we see him. He has to organize. He has to schedule. He has to mobilize. He has to direct. He has to do all these things to, to make this happen. Like, he's... It says like several times here, he's like over all Israel. Um, so so not only um, did God send him there and put him before Pharaoh for this dream, but for the people as well. Because um, when he comes to that verse uh, 55, when all of Egypt was famished, the people cried to Pharaoh for bread. And Pharaoh said to all of Egypt, go to Joseph, what he says to you, do. Um, so we so we see here, um, and Tim Keller says in this section about competence is like it's a form of love. Um, Joseph had to love his people, uh, love the people of Israel, um, of Egypt enough to 
to think about their well-being, not only in the years of plenty where they could have ate up all they, all, all the grain they had, they could have neglected storing as much as they needed, but, but through that, through his competent work, he was able to save for them for these next seven years that are going to be very hard. And we see here at the end of that, because the famine was severe over all the earth, all these people started coming, and all these people were taken care of. Because Joseph, he was uh, competent, competent in the work he did. Um, it was more, and, and in the book, uh, um, in this section, there's an example of this pilot who has to land this badly damaged plane. Um, and in that, we can really kind of grasp, like, oh, he needs to be competent. He needs to think about these things to, to land this plane and to make sure these people get down safely. That's like this immediate impending doom. But we see with Joseph is more of a, a longer, a longer view of things. Fourteen years of, of him having to to plan and care for, and uh, think about the needs of of the people around here. Um, uh, so so with that, um, as I think about like how that applies to me, how am I competent in my job? How am I displaying this? Uh, Ministry of, of competence. Uh, how am I being faithful in, in the small things of my work, and how am I uh, doing those things on a larger scale as well to make, to make sure and ensure that we're we're building the best home that we can. We're serving our families in the best way that we can. Um, and, and and one of those comes through our mission statement: decent and affordable housing. Making sure our Housings are sized properly for our families, like not some big monstrosity, not something too small and cramped, but uh, this three-bedroom bath and half house seems to have worked for us over this past decade or so, and it's allowed us to um, house a lot of families. Uh, Since I've been there, I've built over 20 or 30 homes in the last seven or so years. um, and to think about the type of materials that we use in our home and thinking about our homeowners and how will they maintain those things, how will they be able to take care of their homes. Um, a lot of our homeowners to uh, qualify for the program, their income is 50 to 80% of the area meeting income. So um, they're not at the top of the income spectrum, but they're not at the lowest level either. They're in a, usually in a point where they, they need some help uh, affording a home, and that's where we kind of come in with this uh, zero uh, interest mortgage, and and also our, our volunteers playing it as well. Like all the free labor that that we get, uh, kind of goes into keeping those homes down, and allows us to build in places around New Haven where a for-profit builder would lose their shirt on on a lot of these houses, and 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 redeveloping a lot of these uh, vacant lots that that have been around New Haven. Um, we also do that through uh, energy efficiency. Um, uh, when I came on, we were doing a, a bit of that, um, but uh, over the past few years, we've been able to kind of beef up our energy efficiency, apply for uh, in, our Energy Star certification. So, giving our homeowners a home that they can afford utility-wise as well. Uh, we had one homeowner. I want to say this was four years ago. Uh, during the winter, one winter he was paying $800 a month in utilities, which 
He was living in some apartment that was very drafty, terrible landlord, um, ridiculous rent as well. That's where like all their money was going. Um, so once he moved into his home, we got that down to under 200 or so. Um, it was him, his wife, uh, and three kids. And, and since then, he's been able to kind of take some of that uh, money that he's been saving. He's been uh, sending things back to his uh, home country. He's either from Sierra Leone or the Ivory Coast. Um, he's a part of a group that came over, like, I think, early 90s, around that time. So, like, think, like, Blood Diamonds and all that stuff. So, um, him and a few of his friends were have been able to get into Habitat homes, and we've been able to kind of serve them in that way, and that's allowed them to serve their family and, and friends that they've uh, left back home as well. And kind of talked about this a little bit, like, site selection, like, where we build. Uh, we have homeowners who come from some of these neighborhoods. They have family in these neighborhoods, and... They want to kind of stay there and build there and continue to live there. So uh, thinking about that through the way we select our sites and, and where we build and how many houses we're able to build in the area. There's one neighborhood where we built eight houses on one street. So it, it kind of helped turn those things around, having those homeowners there who are invested in their homes and, and able to kind of relate to one another, keep their yards clean, and that kind of reflects on the other neighbors as well. When we kind of move into the neighborhood, you see them kind of painting their houses or planting flowers in the front yard because they see this nice house next to them and <laughs> they don't want to be outdone. Um, and what I referred to earlier, uh, the piece about resilient building and, and those houses after Hurricane Michael, um, we were able to kind of get in on a pilot program with this about three years ago with the Institute for Business and Home Safety and Travelers Insurance to uh, build these, uh, I guess this program is called Fortified, to build homes that are like high wind and hurricane resistant. Um, so, so learning from that program and kind of taking some of those techniques and putting them in our home and kind of help them to resist these storms and, and weather conditions a lot better um, and, and add that value for our home. I know they have, they're going to have a home that, that lasts as well. Uh, Question back there? Yeah, I was going to say, you talked about like, the neighborhood, the homes. I did a construction, I like the family has. We did that, uh, we had a vinyl siding, a window door, and gutters, and roof roof business. We noticed every time we went to a nice neighborhood, can we do a house? We three, four other people come to us and do a house, and that's where we got a lot of our work. So, doing like that, I remember doing five houses in a row up the neighborhood, you know, and they did good. But you're right because people start working. Someone puts on site as a facial, beautiful house now. You know, you cover, and now the neighbors see that, and they start going fixing something. But we used to laugh about them. Others people were like, watch. And that used to happen all the time when things were good um, in the early 80s. Yeah, I know. Yeah. Yeah, so you kind of... Yeah, like one one new house in the neighborhood could change the whole neighborhood. Yeah. Um, yeah, so kind of thinking about the, these ways um, in which that, as a construction manager and kind of leading this process, uh, I can kind of af affect the direction that we're going um, and the way that we do this, uh, kind of feeling like... like Joseph as well, like I have the ability to kind of steward this and shepherd this and, and care for people, not just kind of getting them into the home, but trying to think about them over the life of the home. Uh, and how do you select, 
reaction of the people to the home? How is that done? And oh my goodness, how would you choose who's going to benefit? Well, we have an uh, amazing selection committee. It's made up of volunteers as well. Um, so when we have property that we have coming up, um, we usually have an uh, uh, application meeting. Uh, the last one, it wasn't, I think it was last summer or spring. There was about 150 people that came out to that meeting, 80 or, 80 or so submitted applications. They narrowed that down to 18, and they selected seven families out of that group. Um, so they're checking, like, credit history, work history, um, like these families, like community involvement and, and all those things as well. Um, they're trying to make sure that they're in a place to actually afford the home and afford the mortgage, um, as well as uh, be a positive impact on, on their community. Um, we had one lady who, um, she was an older lady, um, she was single, um, and, and her goal was to foster kids. So once uh, she moved in, she was able to foster a few kids uh, while she was uh, living there as well. But um, yeah, it's a, a pretty extensive process that they go through. There's a first application, a second application, and then as a part of the application process, they come out and volunteer for 400 hours as well. I mean, 14 hours with the application, then they do their 400 hours. Are they free to sell their home at some point? Um, it, the equity works out um, up to a certain point. Like, some of the equity comes back to Habitat um, up until whatever year that, that's kind of dictated um, in their closing documents. Um, but after that, they're kind of free and clear to do as they please. Uh, any other questions? All right. Thanks, guys.